Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, if you will. Hebrews chapter 13. When I was in eighth grade, and you did not want to know me in eighth grade, God spared you of that, and for that you should be glad. I got into beatboxing for a hot minute. See, I told you. Why did I even? Okay. He knew, though. He knew. I'm not sure how that came about, but I really got into beatboxing for a minute, and uh, I would practice, and I really felt like I had some skills, to be honest with you. I wasn't like the greatest or anything, but I, I, you know, I had it going on. My family and close friends would gas me up, and they'd tell me that they were feeling it too. Um, I went to youth camp one summer, which, by the way, our students are leaving for camp on Tuesday. I went to youth camp one summer, at the, really in my heyday of beatboxing, my beatboxing career, and my older brother, Kyle, was a camp staffer. I was in, like I said, eighth grade. And he was a staffer at camp, at this camp in Tennessee. And um, he introduced me to another one of the staffers there. And he, you know, was familiar with my skills, uh, Kyle was. And so he introduced me to this other staffer whose name was Garrett. Garrett was supposedly a great beatboxer as well. Um, so Kyle wanted me to join Garrett on stage during all of it, you know, the gathering and us you know, throw down together. Um, I chickened out. Wasn't a big stage guy. Still am not, but, you know, I chose the wrong line of work. Turns out it was a good thing that I chickened out because Garrett actually was an incredible beatboxer. Uh, he actually did get the crowd hype, and I'm going to be honest, it was pretty cool, the things that he was able to do, making beats with his mouth. Um, it also turns out that Kyle knew that I was not a great beatboxer, but I was kind of whack at beatboxing, and he actually wanted me to look dumb in front of several hundred of my peers true story. And by the way, my family still roasts me about that whenever we get together sometimes because they made me feel really good about something that I was actually really bad at. And I still haven't quite forgiven them of that. The fact of the matter is when I saw what true greatness was in that sphere, I quickly knew my position in light of that or in relation to such greatness. And I thought about that because of what we're looking at throughout the whole book of Hebrews, but specifically today. And that is that God is great. He, he is so great. He's greater than any of us could possibly imagine. And the Christian life is one of greatness acknowledgement, and as a result of that, surrendered response, okay? That's what the Christian life is. It's greatness acknowledgement followed by surrendered response. By the way, you're never going to hear me beatbox, so don't even think about that. Don't come up to me and ask me in the gathering space after we're done. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Greatness acknowledgement, surrendered response. We have so many examples of this. Paul on the road to Damascus is perhaps the most profound example of that, where Paul was blinded and knocked off of his ride, and on the ground he heard the voice of God, the voice of Jesus, and he realized how great God was and how ungreat he really was. And Paul had it going on. I mean, he was, he was an up-and-comer in his sphere of influence, and yet he realized real quickly when he was confronted with true greatness, he was small. So often in the Old Testament, God operates, and he uses this quote over and over. I'm reading Isaiah right now in my own study, and he says it over and over. It's, I did this that you may know. I mean, God loves that phrase, that you may know. Know what? That he's God, and that he is infinitely great. The greatest path to human flourishing is not in making a great name for ourselves. It is through positional awareness followed by a humble Surrender. Isn't that the gospel? It's positional awareness followed by humble surrender that we find ourselves positionally, find ourselves to be a sinner, finding Christ to be a Savior, and finding in yourself the need for both Savior and a loving Lord. Isn't that, isn't that just the gospel at work, isn't it? 
Finding yourself to be a sinner, finding Christ to be a Savior, and finding in yourself the need for both Savior and a loving Lord. Guys, all of, I mean, the gospel is all about an acknowledgement of who God is, and as a result, who we are called to be in surrender. That our opinions go under his word. Our definitions go under his design. Our plans go under his plans. Our attachments in this life go under his direction in this life. And I'll tell you guys, surrender is a horrifying thing if it is to an unloving and limitless tyrant. But that ain't God. Surrender is a comforting thing if it is to a loving and limitless father. And that is God. Surrender is a beautiful thing because of who God is. Great and good. In a world where we are born with a desire to make a name for ourselves and satisfy our desires, I want to look at how we can come under that great name and make much of the name of Jesus as we seek to find our surrendered satisfaction in him. So let's look at it. Verse 7 We're going to go 7 through 17 this morning, all right? It says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside of the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The place from which we're jumping this week and also last week and all of chapter 13, really, I mentioned this, that he, the book of Hebrews proper, the, the, the body of it ended at the end of chapter 12. The, the substance of it ended at the end of chapter 12. Chapter 13 is part of the book of Hebrews, but it's an epilogue. It sort of, it trails off into some final substance and instructions for God's church, these, this Hebrew audience. And so because of that, we're seeing that these verses in chapter 13 are really to follow a main theme that we see at the end of chapter 12 in verses 28 and 29. Look at that with me real quick. Chapter 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, it says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God, here it is, acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. What that means is that everything in chapter 13 is what it looks like to live a life of acceptable worship. And last week we saw that that looks like, the very first thing in chapter 13, it looks like love. It looks like love that continues, that perseveres, whether it be brotherly love or to strangers or to those that are suffering or the love of honoring marriage versus sexual sin, which is perverted love. The love of contentment versus the love of money and greed and coveting. We saw all these things last week. And what we saw at its core is that worship at its core is love. That's why the greatest commandment is what? to love the Lord your God 
with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. What is the greatest thing? It's loving God. That's the core of what it means to be a worshiper. This week, we're going to see that on the next thing, it's not just that worship at its core is love, but that worship at its core comes at a cost. Following Christ comes at a cost. That means we put God higher than we put ourselves, and that can come at a cost, making him greater. And so we're going to leave with three main things this morning, making him greater. The first thing is to make him greater than the cultural current, than the cultural current. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment, making him greater than the cultural current. When I say current, every culture comes with it, the temptation to be led away by it, like a current, like a, like a stream, right? Uh, like a wind current or a water current. We'll see this word picture here in just a moment, but every culture has a temptation, comes with it the temptation to be led away by the culture instead of gravitating toward Jesus. And so we're going to see this in our passage. Look at verse 7. He says, remember your leaders, those who, here it is, spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. He begins this section with reminding them or encouraging them to remember their leaders. That word remember is pretty important because it implies that these leaders he's referring to are dead. Remember them. They've been gone. Maybe he's talking about the people, the hall of faith in chapter 11, or maybe just because this is a time where Christians were being martyred. Maybe pastors and church leaders in their time were not with them anymore not really clear, but what is clear is that he's saying to remember them. But specifically, the author wants them to remember those who were not just their leaders, but their leaders who spoke the word of God. It's a very important phrase. The ones that gave them the gospel, gave them the scriptures. He then says to imitate their faith. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul sort of alludes to this to Timothy when he talks about imitating my conduct, aim in life, faith, patience, love. And Paul really emphasizes suffering, which I think is the author's intent here as well, because it's indicated by radical faith and trust in God, which is what all of chapter 11, that hall of faith, was about, suffering and difficulty and sticking with it and continuing to follow God, even in the middle of hard circumstances. One of the things that I've tried to be intent to teach you guys as we walk through the book of Hebrews is that we should be looking behind the text, that every instruction is there because it was needed. And so why is this instruction given? Well, look behind the text, and that is that There was a growing concern of drifting in doctrine and not heeding the gospel teaching and the guidance of their church leaders that had come before them. And so verse 8 makes perfect sense. He says, when everything around you is shifting and changing, don't fall for it because, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That verse makes sense in context, right? Don't be drifting because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His message, the truth, the truth is not relative, right? It does not change. Jesus is the same. And he said, I am the truth. And so based on the very next verse, it seems that Judaism and sort of this backsliding was happening into restrictions and food laws. These things may have been creeping back in. Let's keep going. Verse 9. He says, do not be led away. Okay, so Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So do not be led away. That verse right there is very important. Led away. By diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. And again, you could fill in a teaching of, for every society on earth over millennia where it says strange teachings. You could just fill in the blank there. But what the author is saying is that grace and Jesus have done for them far more than the dietary laws that the sacrificial system 
ever did. They got more in Jesus than they ever had in the Old Testament, the law. And that's not to throw away the Old Testament. It simply says that it all makes sense in light of Jesus. Because that's a little confusing, I just want to call back a couple of verses that we've already seen in Hebrews to make this make a little bit of sense, okay? In Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 10, I'm jumping to the middle of verse 9. It says, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They can't be made right. But then verse 10 says, but they deal only in food and drink and various washings. Or perhaps more pertinent to us is something that Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. And it's several verses, but they're short. And I'm going to read, because I think this would make sense in our context here. Paul said to this church, and you can, you can read this situation into it immediately. He said, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Has anything changed, by the way? That's the same today, right? People distort. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. And verse 10 is sort of the anchor of this text. It says, For am I now seeking the approval of man which is how you twist the gospel, right? Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He then says in verse 11, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. If it ain't man's, man can't change it. If it doesn't belong to us, we can't mold it to be what we want it to be, is what he's saying. We can't shape and shift the gospel to suit our own proclivities and preferences and comforts and whatever cultural worldview may want to slip in there and say, actually, God kind of meant this. The verb there, I mentioned it a moment ago in verse 9, do not be led away. It's one word in the original language, which is Greek. And that word for do not be led away, it's a word that would be used for wind or water currents that would transport things by force, right? So you have a water current that moves something from point A to point B, transporting it by force. You guys, um, just in, at the beach, I think in the last couple of weeks, there were a whole bunch of people that died because of a riptide, right? That's, there's power, I think it was in the, in the Florida Panhandle area, right? There's power in a riptide because it's a strong current, right? There's a force behind that current. And you've got to be aware of that current and beware, right? Truly beware because it is a dangerous thing. Getting caught in the current can be dangerous, right? This is what he's saying. The, the currents of our day may promise things like fulfillment. They may promise happiness or self-worth or riches or health and wealth and prosperity. We must not be swept up in the current of the world. We must not. We cannot be swept up in the currents that the world overpromises and can never deliver. You know some of these currents. I mentioned one of them just a moment ago when I said truth is not relative. You guys ever heard the phrase, well, that's my truth. That's, careful Caleb, it's nonsense, it's nonsense. That's a gospel contrary to the one that God gave us. There's no such thing as my truth. There's only the truth, and it belongs to God, and he's given it to us. And the truth is Christ alone. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If we do not bow under the truth that God has given us, we have made an idol of our own truth, and that's no truth at all. This is a current. 
and it pulls, and it's forceful, and it's attractive, because it lets you be just who you want to be. The Bible bids us come and die. Lay it down. Surrender. Another current in our world is the pursuit of happiness. You think, well, that sounds good. Yeah, it is good, as long as our desire and our pleasure is in God alone. That's our pursuit. And the other things are great when they happen, but guys, your pursuit is not happiness. Your pursuit is Christ alone. But the pursuit of happiness is vanity. It overpromises and underdelivers. People have it all and yet have nothing. But it's a current and it's attractive. Another current is to be your best self. Can I just tell you, your best self isn't good enough. That's why God sent Jesus. It's just nonsense. That's just nonsense. And it sounds attractive. Oh, it's a word of self-empowerment. You have none. You have none. You need Jesus. Or maybe the current of you're perfect just the way that you are. Guys, we're desperately imperfect. That's why we need Jesus. We don't subscribe to Bruno Mars theology where you're amazing just the way you are. No, Jesus fell on a grenade for you. That's another Bruno Mars song. You know, at my old church, that joke literally fell flat, but I heard a few laughs out of you guys, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that. You're not perfect the way that you are, guys. You need Jesus, and he can make you perfect, but only when you're wrapped in his righteousness. Or maybe it's the current of people don't change. You ever heard that? Well, people don't change. Thank God that people change. Thank God that he changes people. All of you guys in here, if you're in Christ, are new creations. Thank God that he changes people. Don't buy, it, it sounds nice and it sounds attractive. Don't buy the nonsense. This is the truth. Weigh it against this. And the currents are attractive and they're forceful. But we gotta be wise over that. There's a very popular preacher that is very attractive in the way that he says things. And so often he's leading godly people astray, saying things like, following Jesus doesn't change you into something else. It reveals who you've been all along. And I know that sounds great, but it's nonsense. God talks about you being transformed. He talks about you being a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Same guy has said, God broke the law for love. Oh, he better not have. He cannot be a God of justice if he breaks the law for love. There's no such thing as that. That guy's name is Stephen Furtick, and you need to beware if you listen to him. I wasn't sure if I wanted to say that or not, but there it is. There is no such thing as new and improved Christianity. It is the same old, beautiful, wonderful truth that God has given us in his word. The thing about the wind, the water current, is that if you do not actively strive against the current, you will be swept up in it. And the same is true for us. That's why I remember back in, earlier in the book of Hebrews, we looked at that passage and said, don't drift. Beware the drift. This is it just made over again. I love that it says here, we're strengthened by grace, not by foods. And you see already sort of what, what we're getting at. We're going to get to some sacrificial stuff in, in the Hebrew uh, people, their tradition. But the, what the message here is that you don't need Jesus plus this. You just need Jesus. Jesus is enough. All I have is Christ, as we sang just a moment ago. And listen, when things in this world are snatched away, and I'm thinking about our brother and sister, Keith and Christy, right now. When things are snatched away, all you have is to be reminded that all you have is Christ. It's the air in our lungs, you guys. It's the reason we live and breathe, that Jesus is over everything. He must be. He's greater than the cultural current that may feel forceful and attractive. 
We also need to make him greater, not just over the cultural current, but greater than the comfort camp. Greater than the comfort camp. I just noticed that I did two C's on both of those things. You're going to be disappointed on the third one. I did not keep it up. Uh, unintentional. Greater than the comfort camp. We're going to see some, some biblical language here that is going to support my phrasing there on that second one. Remember, this is a book that's written to Jewish Christians by a Jewish Christian. And because of that, it is going to talk about things like food laws and dietary restrictions and sacrifices and Jerusalem and things like that. Being a Christian among a people who thought Jesus was a heretic or a blasphemer would mean shame and scorn and mockery, Okay. Remember the context here, who this is written to, is that being a Christian for these people in a context where Jesus was shamed and, and called a blasphemer, it would mean, it would be hard for them. They would be shamed by even their family and friends. This still happens, by the way, in the Middle East. Look at verses 10 and 11, keeping that in mind. It says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent, that is the tabernacle, these are the priests, the Old Testament, those who serve the tent have no right to eat of our altars, what he's saying. Verse 11, four. The bodies of those animals, sacrificial animals, whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned, this is important, they're burned outside the camp. Outside the camp. This is Old Testament language. The altar was where animal sacrifices were brought. And it says here, uh, let's find it. Verse 11 says, blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin. Now, I don't want to assume that you understand that because there are people in here that, that don't really have much of a grasp of these things. And so one of my least favorite things is when somebody in my position gets up and assumes information that everybody knows something. I'm going to assume that you don't. When it says the words sacrifice for sin, here's what that means. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We have on our heads a, a death note. A death payment is, is demanded. That's why in Adam, with Adam and Eve, the, God said, the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely, what? Die. And, and the, the wages of sin is death, and therefore we have a curse on us. And the curse is death. And so God gave his people the sacrificial system to say, so that you don't have to bear the weight of your sin, you put it on an animal. You put that on, on another living thing and let that thing die and it be your substitution, okay? That's why it says here, the, by the high priest, as a sacrifice for sin. God's people did this for a long time to say, God, pour out your wrath, pour out your curse on these lives, on this blood over us. It, it was sort of to... to put a, a placeholder on the thing that Jesus would eventually come and accomplish forever. So sacrifice for sin is a very important concept in the Old Testament that I don't know that everyone in here knows that. And so I wanted to explain that just very clearly. Atonement is what the, these things brought. It was reparation for wrongdoing. And in the Old Testament, if someone did not, was not covered and made clean by that sacrifice, then they had to go outside of the camp. They couldn't be among God, just like Adam and Eve had to leave the Garden of Eden. They couldn't be among God because they still were bearing the curse of their iniquity. They were unclean. And so in the Old Testament, being outside of the camp, it meant that one was excluded from the place where God especially dwelt with his people. That which was unclean was not allowed in the camp, but had to go outside of the camp. The sacrifices that priests brought to the altar that bore sin on behalf of the people then had to be taken outside of the camp because they were bearing the curse, right? Take them outside, and then they had to be removed from among the people because they bore the sin defilement on their behalf, and then they would be burned. 
burning the carcasses in the city walls would have defiled the city of Jerusalem. And that sounds really ticky-tack, but they had to be obedient to God's instruction so that they could be seen as clean before a holy God. That's kind of important. That's why we have Jesus, church. All right. So they had to take these animals out there, and they had to burn them. And if they didn't do it, if they did it inside the city, they were putting themselves in a situation of defilement. So in light of that, I know that's a lot. Look at verse 12. He says, so Jesus also suffered, remember, he's a sacrifice, outside the gate, outside the city, in order to sanctify, that means make perfect, the people through his own blood, to make them clean. Jesus, you know, carried his cross of defilement. You know where he carried it? Outside the city. He bore that cross and he carried it outside of the city. Do you have that, that image that I, I sent to you, the, the, the map? We looked at this in the book of John at great length. And look at number nine. This is, ignore most of that. That's, that's Jesus' last steps, we think. But verse number, number nine, which is on the far left side of the screen, is you'll see it. Maybe you can read that. It says Golgotha, the, in the place of Joseph's tomb is beside it. This is where Jesus was crucified. Notice a very important element about that. It's outside the city, right? He had to carry his cross outside of the city. Why? Because he was bearing defilement. Just as sacrificial animals were burned outside of the camp, so Jesus had to suffer outside of the gate, outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And what this means is that you and I have a new and final altar. The blood was poured out on one altar, finally and for all time, and it was at the cross of Christ. Look at verses 13 and 14 in light of that. It says, therefore... Let us, therefore means that we're getting to application, okay? Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. Now, hold on a second. Written to Jews, think about what that means. You're going out there with the thing that held the defilement. That would mean that you yourself would be defiled. This is a big deal. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here, here, we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. We don't have to cling to the things here because we go out there to our sacrificial lamb. Jesus' suffering and death show that even though he lived a sinless and perfect life, he willingly became unclean, despised by human beings. What the author is saying is, and it's very simple, this is a word of application for them, and so it's a word of application for us. What he's saying is, will you, will you, Identify with Jesus as despised by the culture but accepted by God, or will your identity within the culture accepted by man but be rejected by God? Since Jesus suffered outside of the camp, what it means is that we must be willing to identify with him there. In other words, being a friend of God will mean at some point being an enemy of the world. Being a friend of God will mean at some point being an enemy of the world. We can't be married to Jesus and be married to the culture. We just can't. You got to pick a lane. You got to pick a lane. It will mean that we will receive mockery from our peers. It will mean that we have different values from our friends. It will mean that we're treated differently, that you're accused of being on the wrong side of history, that your views will be slandered and even misrepresented at times. Safety will be unknown. Security is unknown. Comfort is unknown. But this is no lasting city. There's conflict. But the good news is that we have inner peace. In the middle of this conflict, 
The arms of the culture cannot be where we find our identity, our value, our peace, our security, our happiness. Man, those things in longevity are only found in the arms of Jesus. We go outside of the camp to be with the one that bore our curse. Third, we make him greater through pleasing praise. I didn't intend to do two Ps there either. Man, so when you have the gift, you just have the gift. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> through pleasing praise. Look at verse 15 and 16. It says, through him then. So again, we, we have a conclusion statement from this. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, here it is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. What it means is that we are called to offer up sacrifices. You think, well, these steps don't look very bloody. Thank God they don't look very bloody. That would be really weird, right? That would be weird if this was like truly where we offered, we would have like probably a bunch of squirrels and raccoons if we lived in Meridian and brought sacrifices, and it would be a weird thing anyway. When it says that we are to offer sacrifices, it doesn't mean that we offer blood. We don't bring dead animals up here. Not once to sanctify us, because Jesus did that. If you look back at verse 12, God sanctified us through Jesus, that sacrifice. Our sacrifices are not, please hear this, our sacrifices are not to earn God's praise. Jesus did that for us, praise be unto him. We bring our sacrifices to offer up our own praise. That's why Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, who you are, as a living, not a dead, not a, not a, a slit throat, but a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. There it is. That's worship. It's you living your life in such a way that is holy and acceptable unto God. So there's three ways that we see what he says here in verses 15 and 16, how we can do that. Number one is praise through words. Number one is praise through words. It says here, words that acknowledge his name. So it says, through him then, verse 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Praise through words. That means that we confess him as Lord and tell him that he is our Lord. Words do matter. The way that we talk to God does matter. Tell him who he is. Celebrate him for who he is. Man, go read the Psalms and you'll see a guy and several guys that want to talk about how great and wonderful God is. Lips that acknowledge him. Confidently go to him with your words. Celebrate him with your words. Praise him through your words. Acknowledge his name. Second, is to praise through your neighbors. Praise through your neighbors. He says here, it continues, he says to not neglect, to, don't neglect to do good, sharing. We talked about brotherly love last week. You see this in verse 16. Do not neglect to do good, to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Praise through your neighbors. Philippians 4.18 is a great verse that Paul uses to typify this. He says, I've received full payment from the church of Philippi and more, and I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, which was a messenger, the gifts that you sent. Listen to this. Gifts from them to him. He calls them a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. 
It sounds like Paul's a big fan of the book of Hebrews to me. I mean, that's, and this is written way before Hebrews was written, but isn't that neat? He's seeing that them helping him out, being generous and supplying his needs is not just something that he appreciates, but he's saying that you are praising God when you look outside of yourselves and care for other people. The same is true for you, y'all. You praise God when you look outside of yourself and seek to meet the needs of others. That's why same letter, Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. We looked at this on Wednesday. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. I quoted this on Wednesday, looking at this passage, but it says this, humility doesn't mean thinking less of yourself. It means thinking of yourself less. It doesn't mean thinking less of yourself. It means thinking of yourself less. In other words, we praise God when we bless others and meet others' needs. This is a pleasing sacrifice. Right there, verse 16, it's a pleasing sacrifice. The third is praise through your shepherds or your shepherd. Praise through your shepherds. We're going to see this in the last verse we're going to look at, which is verse 17. And when I say shepherds, I don't mean that you have a shepherd living next to your house. I mean church leaders, shepherds in the church. Verse 17 says, And by the way, look back at verse 7 real quick before we read that. Verse 7 said, remember your leaders, okay? Same word for leaders. We're going to see it again in verse 17. Sort of bookends this passage. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Important, okay? Then verse 17 says, not remember your leaders, but obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy. And not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Again, we see this comparison, this bookend comparison between former leaders, where he said, remember them, and current leaders, where he says, obey or submit to them. He mentions, when you think, who are these leaders? Well, obviously they're church leaders, because he talks about them keeping watch over your souls. I mean, that's not what what governmental leaders, it's very clear what The author here is talking about his church leaders, shepherds, pastors over your soul. Let me hear this. I want you to hear this really clearly. God is the shepherd of his church. God is the shepherd of his church. However, he has appointed under shepherds to care for her, to care for his church. You're looking at one of them. I'm your pastor. The word pastor is just uh, Latin for shepherd. That's what a a pastor is. A pastor is called to not be a preacher. Preacher and pastor are not the same thing. A preacher is someone who preaches. A pastor is a shepherd. And those two things are very different. Now, the shepherd does preach, right? But a pastor is a shepherd over souls. And so what does this mean as far as application goes? He says, he, it says that he appoints our shepherds to care for his church, keeping watch over your souls. He mentions about doing, let them do it with joy, not with groaning. It will be of no advantage to you. So what that means is that there's joy in the heart of the shepherd when he is able to shepherd his sheep, God's sheep that he has given to him, and that it is advantageous to you whenever a shepherd is able to do his role in the church. I hate talking about this <laughs> because it's not about my job. And what I want from you in my job, that's just awful. Like, come on. But I'm going to talk about it anyway. Because, and this is, pre, this is expository preaching. You go through a book of the Bible, you face these things. And so we're going to talk about them. Here's what I'd like for you to do, ma'am. I'd like for you to be a sheep for your shepherds. That's what I'd want for you to do. 
to be a sheep for your shepherds. And many of you, this is not your home church, that you're not a member of this church. You're a member of another church, or you may be visiting us, and maybe you're thinking about this being your home church. Uh, it's a very imperfect church, and it has very imperfect shepherding, but we are perfectly loved by God, and he is so good and gracious to us. And this shepherd marches under the banner of God's favor in spite of my imperfection. I'd like for you to let me shepherd you, to let me do my job, to let the shepherds here, Sam of our student ministry, Chris over our music ministry, we want to shepherd you and to do our job to be a shepherd. And the way that you can help us do that is to submit to our leadership. And I know submit, submit's a curse word in our culture. You know that? I know that's a curse word in our culture, but my, my request of you as your shepherd is to do this, to bring me joy, but to bring you a great advantage. To call back to verse 7, this is very important. He mentions the ones that taught you the word of truth, right? God's word. This is very important. You should submit to your pastors. Very important, what I'm about to say. Insofar as pastors teach in accordance with God's word. That's a big caveat. If there ever comes a day where I ask you to do something that is not scripturally based, you should not listen to me. And I need to be rebuked. We're under the shepherding of God at the end of the day, and your under-shepherd strives to be that kind of shepherd. But you should obey and submit to your leadership when we are being led by God's word. You should not submit to pastors if they deviate from the gospel. It's not a universal command, but I want to make you a promise. It is my absolute intention, and I never intend to go beyond this. I intend to shepherd this church by the word of God and not by my preferences. And I want to be a person of prayer, and there are things that maybe you can't see a black and white answer in Scripture. And in those times, I will do my very best to be wise and discerning. But I'm going to do my very best to be a person of this book. Because at the end of the day, you've got a shepherd much greater than me. I want you to let shepherding be our joy, not our hardship. He says, with joy, not with groaning. That just makes me think of parenting, right? I love when my parents let my, let my job, when my kids, my parents probably think the same thing. I like when my kids let my job as their dad be a joy and not a burden. Not something I do with groaning, but with joy. And the same is true as sort of a, a shepherd over this body of believers. I can't talk about this without talking about this, which is that ministry burnout is a real thing. I'm not suffering from that, so I'll just get out in front of that now. But ministry burnout is a real thing. Pastors have committed suicide over ministry burnout. They've left, the, uh, they've left their jobs at the church. They've also just stepped out of ministry, and I have many friends that have done just that. And I'm saddened by that. But ministry burnout is a very real thing, and many of you probably know that to be the case because it has hit you firsthand. But I don't personally think that ministry burnout happens because the job is hard. I don't actually think that that's the case. I think ministry burnout comes because one doesn't feel like they are able to shepherd souls. They feel like their wheels are spinning and they're getting nothing done. What I want from you is to allow me to feed you, to lead you, and at times to humbly correct you. Isn't that the job of a shepherd with a sheep? To feed them, to lead them, and at times to give them a little bonk on the head. We all need that. I need that. But that's my role. And ultimately, even in that correction, it is for restoring you, not for harming you. Give me your hearts, and I will give you every bit of mine. Guys, I love. I told Chris this morning, didn't I? Chris, Chris and Sam, when we walked into my office this morning, I said, how awesome is it that we get to do this? I love our church so much, man. 
I love it. I'm thankful that God has given you to me. Um, and I hope you're thankful that he's given me to you. <laughs> Come ready to be fed and led. Come and, and, and be part of a body. Listen, you may have your own church family and just be visiting here. If you don't have a church family to call your home, call your own, please prayerfully consider whether this may be your home. God doesn't call us to be people that just are Christians that float to churches. He calls us to drop our anchor and be part of a local body of believers, link arms with others, serve alongside others, find community here. And there are so many ways to do that. I'm running out of time, but man, the greatest path to human flourishing is not in making a great name for ourselves, but through finding yourself to be a sinner, finding Christ to be a Savior, and finding in yourself the need for a Savior and a loving Lord. And there's where I want to end on. Please don't put your things up. Please hear this last part. This is so important. There is no one in here, no one, who is free from sin. The same thing was true of, the, of Hebrews, and the same thing is true of every person that identifies with Christ since then. On the Day of Atonement, when we're talking about this altar stuff that we just looked at a moment ago, on the Day of Atonement, the Jewish people would cast out the bodies of the sacrifices that bore their defilement so that they could be seen as pure. They had to be distant from the defiled bodies. But guys, we're not like that. We go to the body of the one who became defiled for us in death, for it is only through drawing near to him that we may be not defiled, but purified. You're not made pure by your own merit, by your own work. You don't, you don't have to clean up your act before you can come here. God is the one that does the cleaning. You just, you come and fall on your knees before him and say, God, do the work because I can't. He became defiled so that you could be made pure. In other words, he became sin who knew no sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Guys, surrender is horrifying if it is to an unloving and limitless tyrant, but it is so comforting if surrender is to a loving and limitless father. Resist the current. Resist the pull, the force of our culture. Be willing to be outside of the camp of the culture outside of the camp of comfort, be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel and strive to live a life pleasing to him. And when you don't, remember that you are not made right before God by your work, but by the work of Jesus on the altar called Calvary. Praise God, that's all we have. All we have is Christ.